Okay, this week is uh, the week leading up to Easter, traditionally called Holy Week. Maybe we could call it the Passion Week, would be a better phrase, I don't know. Um, but we've got several things on, your, on the seats as a blue card. Um, really encouraging you to take part in all of this. You're going to hear later that I'm, we're, what we're doing this morning is really setting us up for the whole week. We've got several things that we want to challenge you to do and think about this week, to think about the, the price that Jesus paid for us. So Thursday night, we're going to have um, a Last Supper in here, celebrate Jesus' Last Supper. We're going to take what we've talked about today and reflect on it more on Thursday night. Friday in this space, we're going to have a journey to the cross where we will get to kind of follow the trail of the things that happened to Jesus on the way to the cross, again, to reflect on what it cost him and what he had to do um, for my sin. We will have sunrise service next Sunday morning. We're going to be in the press room this year. Just with things being different, we're taking the year to do that. And then our normal Easter services that we're going to have. Challenge you to invite somebody next week. There are always people who are willing to show up on Christmas and Easter, right? And I've given one of these to a friend, somebody who is in the process of seeking and they acted pretty interested, so you can grab one on the table on the way out, but really encourage you to, to you, can, you can mail one to somebody, give it to somebody, and invite them to join you. Um, so, just would love to see that. And speaking of next week, just want to say um, something simple. What I'm going to be saying next week is, is really geared a lot towards people who don't know Jesus, um, and so it will be safe, and I promise it's not going to be, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of extra time on that, so... Um, but really encourage you to do that. And I also want to tell you, just when I do that kind of thing, I want you to know that um, that's not my only audience I'm speaking to. It's never the only audience I'm speaking to. I'm always speaking to two or three different people whenever I talk. Part of what I'm doing next week is that is that's a way for me to equip you to how to deal with somebody who has questions about resurrection, who has questions about the truth and reliability of Scripture. So when you're here, don't be thinking this is just for a non-believer. I want you to be thinking in terms of this, I could use this text to help somebody gain more confidence in, in the truth, the reliability of Scripture, and the reliability of the resurrection. So um, just come with, with ears ready to hear that. Okay, we're going through the New Testament. Um, what I'm going to speak on today is from actually two weeks reading because it, it fits today, and I really want to dive into this. Um, so... Before I do, though, I just want to tell you something cool culturally about Israel. When we were over there, we got to see how they process olives in Israel. Um, it's kind of one of their major crops over there, um, and how they make olive oil. Um, olive trees are the inter most interesting-looking trees, the color of the leaves, the shape of the leaves. They're, they're so gnarly. Their bark is so gnarly. When those olives come off, they're a reddish color, not the green that we usually associate with. At first, some of them can look that way. Um, but we got to actually see firsthand how they process olives, um, the, whole, the whole process of getting olive oil. And what they'll do first is they will crush the olives. They'll put them in this, this thing, and I forget what it's called, and they'll have a wheel, I mean, this, this, this stone that's about 1,200 pounds that a donkey will, will take around. If you were poor, you would push that thing around, and the whole olive, everything, the pit, the whole thing would get crushed into a mash or a mush. Um, and then once you had done that, you would take it and bag it up. Usually, however many olives would fit in there, would fill about 15 of these bags that have some holes in them. And they would take those bags and then they would put it in a press where they would press the oil out of it once it had been made into that mash. Um, those stones they would put on that are like, they would, for each press, they would put like five, another 500 pound stone. This is a lot of weight that they're putting on this. The first press they would do would bring out what was the virgin olive oil we hear about. 
um, the most pure form. That was used, only taken, that was taken to the temple, so that was always given to God as a first fruit. The second pressing they would do would be a little lower quality, and that's what they would use for medicine, for cosmetics, and also for the oil that they used in their cooking and their food every day. And then that third press, um, and when we were over there, the guy who was showing us said that on that last press, we put as much weight on it as we can. We're literally trying to squeeze out every single drop of oil on that last, last press, so they're throwing on another stone or two. And that's the, the lowest quality, but they would use that for their lamps or for making soap. So just kind of an interesting cultural thing I wanted to share with you. Um, this is what the whole thing would look like if you had um, an operation going. They actually preferred to do this in caves because caves, the temperature and the humidity was better for olive pressing. So um, just a cool little cultural tidbit I throw out. All right, we're going to read today from Mark 14, and I'm going to start, I'm, I'm going to have the text on here this week. Um, this is actually what we talked about last week, and I want to start reading here. So if you want to turn your Bible, it's Mark 14, and I'm going to be in verse 22. And here's what we're told. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Um, this is really a short walk from where they were. Um, John says that when they went to Gethsemane, that there was a garden there. He's the only uh, gospel that actually calls it a garden. If I, this is a map of, of Jerusalem. Um, it's an amazing place to visit. That red circle is probably where the upper room was in the Last Supper in the wealthy part of Jerusalem. After the Upper Supper, they would have, that Last Supper, they would have walked through the city, probably come out the water gate, would have walked around the outside, gone by on the, on the left. They would have gone by that huge temple mount where the temple was. They would have walked beside that, and then they would have walked down a little valley and crossed over to Gethsemane. You can see Gethsemane is really, really close um, I'm going to show you in a minute how close. It was so close, I couldn't believe how close it was. So they walked over to here and went into a garden. Um, this is a garden that's in the spot where they think it happened that's there. These trees are about 1,200 years old. Um, that's a photo I got to take. It was just amazing to, to be in that space. The thing to me that was more amazing wasn't so much the olive trees. It was how close we were to the Temple Mount. I mean, until you're there and see it, you don't have any sense. I just stepped outside of the garden and took this picture of the Temple Mount. The temple would have been on top of that. And, I mean, this is how close. If, if Bo Jackson had been there with a baseball, he could have thrown it and hit the temple. That's how close that was. I was shocked at how close he was um, to that and to the city. And also in that area, uh, just a few hundred feet from that garden, is a cave. Uh, a cave where likely Jesus met. We're told by Luke and John both that Jesus and his followers frequented this place. And especially Passover, there, was, there were like a half a million people coming to Jerusalem. You couldn't, there was no room to stay, so you'd have to stay outside of the city. And this, this cave in, this, in Gethsemane is probably where they stayed. Um, it was cool, kept them out of the rain if it rained or out of the weather. This is a picture of the inside of that cave. I didn't see this. I found out kind of about it like a week or a few weeks after we left and I didn't know how close we were. When we go back, I am going to this cave. And in a minute, you'll see why I want to go into this cave. Um, it's really powerful what's going on. So that's what's, um, what's going on. 
that cave was just a few hundred feet from that garden, was probably actually inside of it. It was probably a really large garden. So I want to continue with the text We just left where we just left off. So they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. Likely he left the, the 12, went into the cave, and then he took these three out into the olive trees, the garden with him, likely. Took them along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed. He fell to the ground and he prayed. The normal posture for a Jew in praying is standing upright with your head lifted to heaven and your hands lifted up. Um, Jews would only pray in this prostrate position if they were in extreme spiritual anguish for some reason. Um, so something deep is going on that he would fall to the ground and pray. When I thought about that this week, I remember my mother died. We had her funeral. And my dad wasn't well. And like two weeks after he had gone, to, he went to the doctor. I, two days after the funeral, we took him to the doctor in Hayes. And like two weeks after that, he, uh, he called, talked to Pat, and told him what they found. And it was cancer, and it wasn't good. And when she told me, I wanted to physically, but internally, I collapsed. On the floor. Have you ever had that kind of experience? So, to a small degree, I think I know a little bit of what was going on internally. In a minute, we're going to talk that actually I had no sense of what was going on with him. But he collapsed to the ground. So the text continues going a little farther. He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Daddy, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping again because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief's priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. So why this agony? Why this collapsing to the ground? During his whole life, he had been conscious of this day. He knew it was coming. Interestingly, we're going through Luke, and you're going to see this in a week or so, but in Luke 12:50, in the middle of his ministry, he gave his disciples an insight into his heart where he said, I have a baptism to undergo. And if you remember baptism, we transliterate that word. It means to be immersed or submerged into something. I'm going to be submerged into something. And how distressed I am until it's completed. That word, hard-pressed, distressed, afflicted, suffering. So even in his whole ministry, he has this internal suffering that's been going on the whole time because he knew it was coming, okay? Um, and he told his disciples frequently about that. And so he comes to this garden on this, the walking down from Jerusalem, and in chapter 18 of John, it says they crossed the Kidron Valley. 
And here's what I think was going on. If you look at, here's another map of Jerusalem, where that upper room was. You see the Kidron Valley over on the right side, kind of the line over there. It's right outside of the temple, outside the city wall. And Gethsemane's just right over there. And for him to get to Gethsemane, he had to cross this valley and this Kidron brook. This is a photo of the temple wall. It's looking kind of from the other direction, sort of. But that's the temple up there on the right. It's a steep down to the Kidron Valley, and there's a brook that runs through there. This is more of a close-up, so you can see the path or the trail they likely took down in crossing Kidron going over to this garden. And here's why that's so significant. Because that week, that day, in fact, was Passover day. They had had the Passover supper. 250,000 sheep. Josephus told us at that time, lambs were killed that day for the Passover. And all the blood in the temple, they had a drain system that came out of the temple, ran down the side of that little, that valley into the Kidron brook. And so, and then that brook, that blood, it carried that blood away. So as Jesus walks this path and crosses that brook, he sees this valley, this brook full of the blood of Passover lambs. And we know from the Passover supper, he is the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb that will take over the sin of the world. And so seeing that, I think, really stirred up his emotion because he knows it's really coming. And so he sees that and he crosses over um, into that garden with that visual reminder And then they go into the garden up to the cave, and he goes a little further, and he collapses on the ground. And here's what it says emotionally was going on. It says, he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Um, The word, the Greek words behind these words are very rare in the Greek language, even in other literature. They're very strong, intense words, rarely even used. The first word... That deeply distressed, translated in the NIV, means to be thoroughly terrified. Phillips translates it to be horror-stricken. Pretty strong language, right? Horror-stricken. Matthew uses a little bit of a different word. Um, in his eyewitness account of it, he's, it's, he uses the word for deep grief, deep grief to be in deep emotional pain. It was a word frequently used of the pain of childbirth, something I've not experienced, but some of you in here have, and maybe that can make a connection that that's with the intensity of the emotion Jesus is feeling. And then it says, um, deeply distressed. He and Mark, Matthew use that same word, distressed, to be troubled, to be very heavy, extremely anguished, to have anguish overcome you. Again, really strong words. The New English Bible puts these two things and says he was, that horror and dismay overcame him, just trying to get the emotion of this out to us. And then in Mark, the next verse, he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he says. Um, the word to means to be greatly grieved, to be engulfed, to be consumed with sorrow, to be swallowed up in sorrow is how the Holman translates it, um, to the point of death. Luke, interestingly, uses the Greek word agonia. Does that sound familiar? We get our word agony from that, that he was in agony to the point of death, you know, deep anguish, a deep, intense personal struggle, I mean, that he's having, really strong words. So this is the Garen translation, trying to take those thoughts together that he began to be terrified and greatly distressed, an emotional pain and grief so deep it can only be likened to the physical pain of childbirth. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. I'm in deep agony to the point of death. This is what he's saying to them. So I want to show my hand, if you don't mind. Um, They went to a place called Gethsemane. That cave was Gethsemane. Let me show you what Gethsemane means. It's from the Hebrew, Gat Shemanim, and it means the press of olive oil. That cave was an olive press. 
That's what Gethsemane was. It was a place in there. In fact, they have found the hole where the beam, on that right side, where the beam went in for the beam for the crushing, the pressing that went on. So this was the cave where every fall, whoever owned that, would crush and three times press olives to create olive oil. That's what that place was. And so when Jesus is in Gethsemane, I want you to know that he is experiencing the thing that olives go through, that he in this place, the reason for these words he uses and him collapsing to the ground is he is being crushed and he is being hard-pressed three times. And in this garden, we get to see his humanity so clearly. I mean, just his emotion comes out. Um, and I want to tell you, Jesus is no stoic. He's no stoic at all. He allows even his followers to see this deep emotion. He, he expresses it to them. I'm, I'm impressed with his vulnerability, um, something that I struggle with. You, you might not think so when you watch me up here, like I'm a really vulnerable guy. Okay? What you see up here is something I got from my mother genetically. It's in my blood. It's just what my mother's like. She can't talk about anything important without getting emotional. But that says nothing about my personal vulnerability with people. But he was so vulnerable. And in the garden, we're seeing him not as son of God, but as son of man. We're seeing his true humanity come through, his true humanity. Jesus is being crushed here. In Mark 10, 38, when James and John said, we want to sit on your right and your left, he says, you do not know the baptism I'm going to go through. And again, baptism means submerged. You don't know what I'm going to get submerged into in just a week. And right now he's feeling the pain because the submersion's about to begin. And I, as I've thought about the weight that he was carrying, the internal weight that's going on here, there were six things that really, that I thought about. Number one, that he was just going to, he was going to die. He knew his death was impending. He's in the prime of his life. And death is not normal. It's not how he designed things. Everything in us fights against death, right? And he knows he's going to die. He's got the weight of that. Secondly, Luke twenty-two fifty-three. Jesus said in the garden, he says, this is the hour when darkness reigns. This is the hour when darkness reigns. All of evil was going to be focused on him in a way that had never been focused on an individual, intent on destroying him. Human evil, supernatural evil zoomed in on him. He knew that what coming up was a kangaroo court, lies, accusations. He would be beat by the guards there. He would be scourged by the Romans. He would be spat upon, mocked, stripped naked in public. He would be nailed to a cross, the most painful form of human execution ever invented. Nailed on a cross, stripped naked, out on a hill, outside of the city, by one of the most important gates on one of the most important roads, so people coming and going in, those thousands and thousands of people, could see him and mock him because that's what you did to a criminal. All that evil was going to be focused on him. I think also he was struggling with the fact, the reality of human abandonment, that his very best friends couldn't even stay with him, right? Here he is praying three times. Can you imagine just a, a stone throw away? Probably a Garen stone throw away, not a Bo Jackson throw, stone throw away, right? I mean, just a little ways over there. And I mean, he's in such anguish, and he says, would you pray for me? And he comes over here, and he prays, and he goes back, and they can't even stay awake. Can you imagine if you ask your best friends, like, can you just sit over here and pray for me? And I mean, you're in anguish, right? And then you go and pray. And they fall asleep on you. He's going to be betrayed by Judas, one of the twelve, with a kiss. Peter's going to deny him. All the others are going to flee and run away. He's going to be abandoned humanly. But not only that, think about it. 
He knew that he would be on that cross bearing the weight of the sin of every human being that had ever lived, the weight of that sin. I'm not even talking about the punishment yet. I'm just talking about the weight of every single human sin of billions of people on his shoulders, all of it. I mean, think about that. Just as I was thinking about that this week, I just thought, just alone, he was carrying the weight of everything Adolf Hitler did on his shoulders. Twelve million people slaughtered on him, right? Stalin, 20 million people slaughtered under him. He's carrying the weight of all of that from Stalin. Mao, Chairman Mao, 40 million people, they say, died under the things that he did. He's carrying the weight of all of that, much less the weight of my sin. And I want to tell you, it's crushing. It is crushing to carry that much weight. But there's more. If I showed you the book of Isaiah... Here's what he said about the Messiah that he would go through on the cross. He said that he would be pierced for our transgressions, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, that he would be led away like a lamb to the slaughter, that he'd be cut off from the land of the living. I'm going to skip down to the third one, that he bore the sins of many. 53.10, the Lord would make his life an offering for sin. It's the word for penalty offering, the offering that you would do in the temple for your sin. The next day, he would be nailed on a cross at 9 a.m. He would give up his spirit at 3 p.m. They did the offering of penalty lambs three, twice a day in the temple every day at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. And he knew that he wasn't just going to be bearing the weight of the sin, but that he was going to be bearing the wrath of God, that the wrath of God would be turned loose on him, that he would become the object of God's wrath. In his prayer in Gethsemane, he asked three times for this cup to be removed. You know what that cup is? The Old Testament called it the cup of the wrath of God. And that cup that's deserved by all of us, he would drink that for us. Every last drop he would drink of that. But I think there was something even more daunting facing him than the wrath of God. And it was the judge, than that judgment of the Father. And it was this, that the son who had spent eternity past in intimate deep, intimate, uninterrupted communion with the Father would have that relationship stripped from Him. For the first time, He would experience estrangement from the Father. For the first time, He would experience estrangement. Now think about it. The most painful suffering any human can go through, it's not, it's not physical. It's relational, right? Especially to be abandoned by somebody that you feel you have an intimate relationship. Not many people go through that, but no greater pain. And we're told that while he was on the cross, that the Father turned from the Son, turned from the Son as Jesus took not only our sin upon himself, but the spiritual alienation that we have with God. He was taking that alienation upon himself, the whole human race. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to know Jesus was totally alone, totally alone, something no human has ever experienced. Christian Wiseman said, in that moment, he would feel human destitution to its absolute degree. Jesus would experience abandonment and darkness in, a, in cosmic proportion. And he would be God-forsaken. You ever felt God-forsaken? You ever felt that way? Because I want you to know, if you ever feel that way, you're not. The Bible promises he will never forsake you or leave you. But Jesus was the only person in human history who was literally God-forsaken for a time. Literally God forsaken. No wonder it became dark for three hours. All that for you and for me. 
Let that sink in for a minute. I think we've all experienced agony in some form, right? But nobody like this. This is unparalleled in human history. Nobody has experienced what Jesus experienced, the depth of sorrow. Nobody. One commentator I found said the most interesting thing. He said on the cross, his body would be crucified, but in the garden, his soul was crucified. Here's what Luke adds a detail in Luke twenty two forty two. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's a very real medical condition. It is very, very, very rare. And it's brought on only by the most intense stress. I mean, we've all felt stress, right? But none of us have done this. It's, there's a word for it. It's called uh, hermatidrosis. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Uh, I was going to have Ariel tell me how, and we didn't get a talk after first service. But the tiny, the, the capillaries in your skin burst and mix into your sweat glands, and, and so literally blood comes out of your sweat glands, and that's what's happening to him. It only happens to a person under extreme, intense, unbearable stress. It rarely, rarely, rarely ever happens. Rarely happens, but it happened to him. The stress was so great. I want you to look at the color of olive oil when it comes out of a press. It's a brownish red that resembles blood. The sins of the world would press down on Jesus with such weight that it squeezed blood out of him like oil out of an olive. Isn't that a powerful image? The Jews had grown up seeing this their whole lives, and now they're seeing this happen to Jesus. I've referenced Isaiah 53, and he says something else very profound about Jesus, that after I had seen an olive press that meant so much more to me, 500 years before Jesus died, Isaiah wrote this, he was crushed for our iniquities. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Isaiah is using olive press language for the Messiah. And that's why Mark 13, 34 is translated well by a couple of translations, I think. The good news translation, the sorrow is in my heart is so great, it almost crushes me. And the NLT, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. But it's not over. Because first is the crushing, and then the three presses. Intense pressure. Intense pressure. Three times he goes out and he says, Abba, Daddy, anything is possible with you. Please take this cup of suffering from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And three times he undergoes the press and the pressure of knowing what's coming and him wrestling with God and the will of God on that. Hebrews 5, 7 says of those prayers, it says, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. So this intense pressure. And every time he concludes the same way, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And we, knew that, we know that takes him to the cross. And in so doing, and what's really cool to me is when he steps up from this garden, like that changes. He's, he's gone through the crushing and now he's resolutely going to do what he has to do. I'm, I'm really impressed with that. 
This happens in a garden. You ever heard the word garden in the Bible anywhere? If you know the Bible really well, is there any place that a garden is really important? I'm curious. Yeah, in Eden, right? The first, first three chapters of the book of the Bible. Because in the Garden of Eden, I want you to know that Adam and Eve were tempted and tested in relation to would they submit to the will of God. And we know that they rebelled, and through their abandonment, they brought death unto all humanity. And now here Jesus is in a garden, tested not just once, but twice, but three times. He's tempted and tested. And what's he going to do? Is he going to rebel? Is he going to run from it? Well, no. He submits. And his submission to God meant his death for all. Everything I was talking about, it meant his death for all. But through his death came life. Their rebellion brought death. His submission brings life to all of us. Why would he go through this? Why this crushing? Why these three presses? What's he doing? He could have called 72,000 angels, we're told, and gotten away, right? Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was crushed for our iniquity. He was crushed for me that night, and he was crushed for you. Pressed for me and pressed for you. And I love Hebrews 12 when I ask the question, like, why would you go through that? Here's what Hebrews 12 says. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So under all of this weight, under all of this stress, under all this pressure, under all this the agony and anguish and all that, under that was an actual much deeper emotion that was running in him, and that was the emotion of joy. And it was the emotion of joy that through the cross, that through his death and his burial and resurrection, that he could have a relationship with me and with you and could offer us forgiveness of sins. And that that joy of the possibility of a relationship with me and with you was the stronger driving force to him than the pain of the cross. Because he was looking forward to a joy that Luke 15 talks about, that when one sinner, just one sinner repents and comes into a relationship with God, there's joy rejoicing in all of heaven. That's why he did it. That's why he went through this. It was our sin that crushed him in that garden. And it was my sin that killed him on that cross. And I just want us to take a minute and reflect on that. On your seats, there's a white piece of paper. There's a picture of an olive press where the crushing happens. And I want you to take a minute, and I want you to think, because we all struggle with sin, right? What's the sin right now you're struggling with, really having a hard time getting victory? Because that is a sin that took him to the cross. That's a sin that crushed him. And I want you to take a minute and think about that. To reflect, I want you to write that down. I happen to pick up my own from first service. I want you to write that down. Again, this week is it's Holy Week, it's Passion Week. We've designed a booklet I'd like to ask you to take on the way out. Where this week, it's going to be a chance to... It's, I know a lot of us are reading the New Testament, so I try to make it simple. A very brief reading of Scripture, and then a Scripture that talks about sin in very detailed, specific ways each day. For us to sit and look through that and ask the question, where, what are the sins I'm re really wrestling with that Scripture talks about that took Him to the cross and that crushed Him? I'd really like you to spend a little bit of time each day reflecting on that and thinking about, feel, trying to feel just a little bit of how your sin and my sin crushes him. 
Bring this Thursday night. We're going to use it when we do the communion. Bring it on Friday when you do the journey of the cross. One more thing. We've all been experienced crushing, right? All of us at different times in life to different degrees. And I'm sure there are some this morning that are feeling crushed right now by some circumstance. So I want you to turn this over. Because in Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you're going through a period of crushing right now, I want you to to write that down. We want to have a time of worship, and it's about coming to the altar. And sometimes it's helpful to like to do something physical especially thinking today about how my sin has crushed Jesus. If you're really feeling the weight of that, like, what was that like? What did he, what was that crushing and that pressure like because of my sin? And if you want to confess that to him and like, I need your transforming power in my life, I want to invite you to come up. We had a number of people that did our first service to come up, if that would be helpful. To lay that down is like laying down your sin, confess it to him and then leave it there. And if you're being crushed right now by some life circumstance, maybe it's you're laying down that sin, but it's also like, Lord, I, I want to lay this down. I feel like I'm being crushed, but I want to trust you and I need your grace. So while we worship, I just want to invite you to do that. And you know, it's always that first person. That's what I've learned. There's usually a number of people that want to respond in that way, but it takes the first brave person to take that step that kind of opens the gate for others. So... If, uh, if that brave person is out there, I just want to challenge you to, to do that. So can, we, can, can you stand and can we worship together? Sorrows and trade them for joy. 
booklets on the way out. I really challenge you to, to let it be a week in the Word to reflect on your sin and to, to feel it, to ask the question like every day, like, how did this crush you? Um, challenge you to do that. Come Thursday night for the
the communion that we're going to do. And let me, yeah, if anybody would like to, to pray, there were a few people for service, so one or two, I'll be up here if you wouldn't need somebody to pray with you. John and Jessica are going to be in the back at a table, so go visit them. And let me pray and send us home. Father, Lord Jesus, man, you took it all. Crushed, pressed for my sin. Thank you so much. This week, let us live in the reality of that. Not in a morbid way, but to really think about what it cost you, our sin, what it cost you. So that next Easter when we come, there will be this huge inner celebration of the, your new life and the new life you give us through your death, your burial, and through your resurrection. And we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, 12th, as always, you are sent.